Hey. How you doing? I like Pastor Bob, don't you? He's one of those guys who's gifted with a head that looks good when it's shaved. It's not going to be true of me. I am transitioning from the scared baby eagle look to skinhead. But he's blessed with the right kind of head. That's really good. Hey, uh, tonight um, we have a special event happening here. Uh, I spend part of my life writing books, and in the last uh, few months, a couple of new books have come out, Faith in the Fog, which is a book that's really honest about uh, struggles with burnout and disappointment and uh, depression. It's painfully honest. And then another book with the bizarre title of The Cactus Stabbers. Well, tonight at 6 p.m. here at Timberline in the South Auditorium, we have a one-hour book launch event. It's not going to be a service, and it's not just coffee, although we're going to have coffee and cookies, and I've, I've field-tested the cookies, and I can assure you of their quality. Uh, but I'm going to... I'm going to uh, give a presentation around these things and then we'll have books there as well. So 6 o'clock, you don't have to have a ticket or sign up or anything. Just uh, show up if you would, 6 p.m. this evening. And uh, if you were here last weekend, you'd know that some friends of mine, they created, we created together a little video which its production quality is so stunning that we're, we're thinking it may be mentioned during the Emmys tonight. And... Uh, it, it's such quality, we felt like you'd probably want to see it again. So, uh, so take a look. Zigzag, zigzag. Okay, yeah, zigzag is good. Okay. Speak up, real good. All right? All right, lights, camera, and... Oh, it's already, it's already filming. <laughs> okay, good. Well, hi, everybody. Uh, we're excited about this book launch with Mr. Jeffrey Lucas, our friend. Yes, we are. Hey, Faith in the Fog... I'll be on a serious note, great book. It is powerful, and it's on a subject. Discouragement, depression, it's, it's on a subject we need to hear uh, more about. And uh, so please read it and get to the book launch. Another book, too. Uh, it's called Cactus Stabbers. I have no idea what it's about, <laughs> but I'm fascinated by the title. So we need to come check it out. I'm telling you, it's going to be good. You're up. When is it? When is it? I don't know. The dates are in the bulletin, I think. Oh, they are? best we could do, I'm afraid. So 6 p.m. tonight. Hey, we're continuing this Blessed to Bless series looking at the life of Abraham who became Abraham and this weekend we're thinking around the theme, you are the greatest, you are the greatest. So let's have a look at Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, Genesis 12, 1. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they'd acquired in Haran, and they sent, set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. 
And from there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Timberliners, uh, knowing that um, I spend a lot of time back in the UK, they often ask me about holidays and special events. And um, I've told you before about how we in England have Boxing Day. How many have ever heard of Boxing Day? And Boxing Day is the day after Christmas, which would be the 26th of December. And it's a national holiday. And uh, 99% of the British public have absolutely no idea what Boxing Day is about, including me. But hey, we get to take a day off and eat, so that's kind of fun. We have Boxing Day. Um, people, I've talked about this endlessly, but people ask me every year, do you British people celebrate Thanksgiving? No. Why would we do that? We'd be thanking the Lord we got rid of you, and that would be rude, so... We don't do that. People even come to me and they say, do you celebrate the 4th of July? <laughs> we lost! <laughs> but we do celebrate Valentine's Day. It's coming up in a few days and it might be that for that special person in your life, you have not yet chosen a Valentine's Day gift. I have a suggestion for you. I just discovered this this week. I thought you might be helped by this. Take a look. Look at that. If you had no idea what to get her for Valentine's Day, imagine how overwhelming arranging her funeral might be. Give her the perfect gift. Make pre-arrangements as a couple with the... How many know that's not going to fly? But as I saw that ad, it did, it did provoke a question in me. And the question is this. What do you want people to say at your funeral? Apart from what kind of sandwiches do you think we're getting? What do you want people to say at your funeral? What will our legacy be? And by the way, even in talking about funerals and legacies, let's not falsely come to the conclusion that legacy is something that we just leave behind. No, you live a legacy now, like it or not, positively, negatively. Mark Friedman in the Harvard, Harvard Business Review, he said, today we can do even more than leave a legacy. We can actually live one. Just the other day I was talking with a friend and I said, hey, what do you want him to say at your funeral? And he said, he thought about it, he said, well, I, I want... I want him to be able to say he was great. He was a great husband. He was a great father. He was a great friend. And that was really interesting because that's what we're thinking about this weekend. As God spoke to Abraham, God gave him a twofold promise. Have a look at it. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great. And the Hebrew word there means to entwine your name with greatness. It's a beautiful term. Maybe great is what we want to be. The problem that we face is that there's quite a lot of confusion in our culture about what greatness really is. I mean, some people think being great, well, that means 
that you're famous and celebrated. And we're now living in a weird time. How many know there are people today in our culture who are famous for being famous? How weird is that? They demonstrate no noticeable talent apart from the fact that they've got a good PR machinery and they know how to put themselves in the right place for the right photograph. Greatness is not about about that, surely. Others who think greatness is about being the best. How many are old enough to remember Muhammad Ali? Cassius Clay who said, I am the greatest. Or, or, or others would say, well, greatness, that's about being fearless, fearless. Isn't it true, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, that we have a, an incredible capacity for fear? We fear life, we fear death, we fear what is, we fear what isn't, we fear what might be. We're frightened of what we know, we're frightened of what we don't know, we're worried about intimacy, we fear rejection, heights, spiders, clowns, failing I look into the eyes of my mother, into the clouded eyes of my mother, clouded by dementia, and a thought pops into my mind that says, you're in the same gene pool, it's going to come after you. And I, and I swap that thought away like a pesky mosquito, but it comes buzzing back round again. Some of us know firsthand what that fear can do. And actually, we are now experiencing techno-fear, media Media often sells us fear. A survey was done of newspaper and broadcast media back in 1994. And they examined, they took a section of media, and they examined how many times the phrase at risk occurred during that year. It was used by the media 2,037 times in that year. In the following year, the same section of media the phrase doubled, and in the year 2000, the phrase was used 18,000 times. Why? Why are terrorists posting videos that are horrific? Because they want to terrorize. They want to create fear. Now, I want to suggest that fear doesn't mean that we're not great. Abraham experienced fear. You say, how do you know? Well, here's a clue. In Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, do not be afraid. I deduce from this that this implies that indeed Abraham was afraid and God says, don't be. So surely greatness is not the absence of the capacity of fear. Rather, it is a refusal to be paralyzed by it. So what is true greatness? Before we go any further... Let's realize this. God's definition of greatness is different from ours. And Jesus had to teach his disciples that. Can you imagine this, everybody? You're in a room and Jesus is sitting right there. He's at the table. And you're there with your friends and colleagues. And with Jesus sitting right there, you start to have a fight. You say, how is that possible? Well, the disciples did it quite a bit. How many know that's awesomely gifted to actually have a fight with Jesus right there? What did they argue about? Well, a number of things, one of which was greatness. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 46, it says, An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. And he stood a child in front of them 
and taught them about simplicity and about trust. And then in Luke 22 and verse 24, it says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. And he talked about serving. You see, God's definition of what is great is different from ours. That's why this weekend, as we think about Abraham, I want us to expose some myths about greatness. Now, I'm going to talk about five of them, and they're going to be listed out for you, and you're going to follow along in the bulletin, I can see. Please remember, I'm talking about myths. In other words, these are not true. They're wrong. I don't want you to half listen to me. And then in 35 minutes from now, go out in pursuit of dead chicken. And as you share that meal, you say, Pastor Jeff said, no, I'm saying these are wrong ideas. Everybody got that clear? Nod at me if that is is clear. All right, that's great. So myth number one, this is not true. Myth number one is that you can do anything if you try hard enough. Myth number one about greatness is that you can do anything if you try hard enough. It's not true. Let's just get over that. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God said, Go to the land, I will show you. And in verse 4, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him. You see, God didn't say to Abraham, Dream the impossible dream, and I will make your dreams come true. No, God was saying, I'm going to dream a dream through you. Now, how about getting in step with my dream? Those are different things. Every year, young people graduate from high school, and they are told something like this. If you work hard enough, and you dream a big dream, you can do anything you want. Hello? It's not true. And the sooner we face up to that, the less disappointed many young people will be. You say, sounds kind of negative. You're doing your British negative thing again. (laughs) No, there's a general recognition that sometimes in trying to suggest that greatness comes from big dreams, that we negate the value of the ordinary. Carl Wally said this, children consistently hear how they can be anything they want to be. This promise is usually accomplished, accompanied by thoughts of grandeur and extraordinary success. Our ambitions and hopes are educated on the premise that to settle for the ordinary, which is often equated with what is boring and indicative of a past and inferior time, is beneath us. This hope of becoming something extraordinary trickles down from the rafters of our dreams where we dwelt as children into the basement of our hearts where adults go to think about what could have been and prepare a path of projecting their fallen dreams onto their children. Let's tell young people, be the best you can be. Let's tell them that. But don't tell them they can just do anything they want, lest we devalue faithful, ordinary living. Now I hear someone say, but the Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, you can't. (laughs) If that means I can do anything. That's not what the Bible is saying. Look at it. The Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What that means is, I can do anything that God calls me to do because He'll equip me to do it. It doesn't mean, I can do anything. I can't do anything. I cannot fly without tickets, play the bassoon, speak Japanese, or give birth to twins. 
I can confirm it. I cannot. I can stand here and I can say, I can do all things, I can do all things, but I can't. I can only do that which God calls me and equips me to do. There is a difference. Helen Keller said, I long to accomplish a great and noble task, but my chief duty is to accomplish humble tasks as though they were great and noble. The world is moved along not only by the mighty shoves of its heroes, but also by the aggregate of the tiny pushes of each honest worker. Myth number one is that you can do anything if you try hard enough. Myth number two about greatness is that great people are self-made people. It's a myth. It's a myth. Have you noticed that in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, that's about self-made. Let us build a tower and make a name for ourselves. Do you see that? Genesis 12, God speaks to Abraham and says, I will make your, your name great and you will be a blessing. Genesis 11 is self-made person. Genesis 12 is God-made person. Does that mean that we're just going to sit around and do nothing and be lazy? No, of course not. We have responsibility. But 88 times in Genesis, the word blessing occurs. You see, we were made not to be self-made. Sir, when you were told when you were younger, stand on your own two feet, you were told a half-truth. There is nobody in this building who was designed to stand on their own two feet. You say, I'm not religious. That's not the question. You've got a pulse. You're human. That means that embedded in the very DNA and design of who you are as a human being is the reality that you and I, we were designed to walk with God, with His help, under His blessing. Life doesn't work without that. Maybe, maybe for some of us today, it's time for us to realize the myth. Stop being exhausted by trying to figure it all out ourselves. And make a declaration of dependency upon God. It's a myth. Stand on your own two feet. Myth number three. Myth number three is look out for number one. Look out for number one. Well, just if you want to be great, don't you worry about anybody else. You just focus and go for it. It's a myth. It's a lie. What is it God says to Abraham? He says in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You're going to be a blessing. Walt Disney, famous for that mouse and those magic kingdoms, said that there are three types of people on the earth. The first type are the well poisoners, Disney says. The well poisoners, you maybe have met them, they, they love to drape you with discouragement. They're obscenely eager to notice your failures and tell you what you can't do even if you can. They're vandals who snuff out sparks of creativity. Avoid the well poisoners if you can, particularly if you own a well. Stay away from them. Then there's a second group, says Disney. They are the lawnmowers. The lawnmowers are nice people. They're good people. They're moral people, but they're preoccupied with their own yard. Your yard may look like a jungle, but don't ask for their lawnmower. They're not going to lend it to you. They are morally, nicely, privately preoccupied with their own stuff. 
If you have a problem, don't knock at their door because they won't be in even if they're in. There's the well poisoners and there's the lawnmowers and then there's the life enhancers. And the life enhancers are the beautiful people who reach out. They want to strengthen. They want to enrich others. They lift up. They inspire. How do we become great? Sometimes it's as simple as being proactively determined to be a life enhancer. Catching people doing something right. Mugging them with unexpected encouragement. Demonstrating kindness. It's not just about number one. And not only that, it's not just about being the best either. Number one in terms of being at the top. I need to be really careful. I'm kind of scared to say what I'm about to say because I know I'm going to get emails about it. And not from you, but from British people who watch this on the internet. There's a lot of British people. It's kind of weird when I go to Britain. People say to me, say hi to Darry. And, you know, and, and I'm like, how do you know him? And they, they, they watch. And, and so I know British people watch this. And I'm going to get into some trouble. But I'm going to do this for you, people. When we had the 2012 Olympics, how many remember that? You watched some of the Olympics on TV. It was fantastic in Britain. I didn't get to go to any event. I couldn't get the tickets, but it was like a national party in, 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 in Britain. It was amazing. Party. Party. I always have to qualify that word here. People, they think I'm saying party. Like a national party. Ooh, don't want to go near that thing. Party. It was amazing. British people smiled at each other. It was awesome. We greeted each other on the subway without being suspicious that we were greeting perverts. It was really great. <laughs> but here's what they noticed from the 2012 Olympics. Pho photographers took photographs of the medalists, gold, silver, bronze, the greatest day of their lives. You are in the top three in the world. Here's what they found out. If you win gold, you're ecstatic. If you win bronze, you are happy. But there were many cases of people who won silver and they weren't too thrilled. Why? Well, bronze, you got a medal. And gold, you got the medal. But silver, you are so close. And they captured photographs of medalists who won the silver and they said they'd have probably been happier if they'd have got bronze. One lady in, uh, in evidence there. <laughs> she won the silver, and uh, she, it's not just that she ate something bad. There's this look of desolation and disappointment because it wasn't quite number one. We don't have to be number one. Myth number four is that the Lone Ranger usually wins. The Lone Ranger usually wins. Look at Abraham. He didn't go alone. He took a community. He took his wife, Sarah, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions that accumulated, all the people that acquired in Haran. They set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Now, when it says that he took all the people that acquired, let's face it, that, that sounds a little like human trafficking. Slavery was accepted back then, but this is... Commentators say that this doesn't refer to that. This was a wider extended family community that Abraham, that Abraham took with him. He didn't go as the Lone Ranger. Anyone remember the Lone Ranger? Anyone remember the Lone Ranger? Man, that's... 
I got myself really embarrassed about the Lone Ranger when I first came to America. I thought I would be culturally relevant by using the Lone Ranger as an illustration. So I, I, I went into churches and I'd say, you know what? The Lone Ranger used to ride around the West on Tonto. And I, people would laugh like you just laughed. And I thought, oh, that's kind of fun. One day someone came to me and delivered me of my delusion and said, Silver was the horse, not Tonto. The world is not going to be won by isolated heroes, lone rangers. The world is not going to be won by heroes who are able to say, Bond. James Bond. The world is going to be impacted by people in community. That's why I believe in church. Not just as something to prop us up or make us feel better, but church, being together, prioritizing being together. And I know, you know, it's, it's, it's boring, isn't it, when you don't feel like it. You think, ah, dear. weather's nice today. I mean, look at you folks, you're here. Weather's nice today. I, I don't want to sing. I don't want to give. I don't want to listen. I don't want to listen to the message. It's really boring when you feel like that, especially when you're the preacher who's going to give the message. That's, that's rough, honey. The collective power and value of church. The Lone Ranger's not going to be the winner. We're going to do this together. Well, finally, myth number five. Myth number five is that work is more important than worship. That worship doesn't really matter, just work hard, make that the priority. It's a myth. Chapter 12, verse 8. For there he went towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Uh, my wife Kay was a little upset earlier this week. She was a little nervous and worried. And the reason for that was I announced that I was going to try to fix something. Thirty-something years of marital bliss has taught Kay that when I fix something, it's temporary. The shelves I put up will fall down. The repair I make to the car, we're going to have to call out those people to come and help us out soon. I don't fix things. It's always been that way when our children were younger. If I said I was going to fix something, there would be the deafening sound of high-pitched intercessory screaming as they realized that Daddy was going to try and fix stuff. I just don't do that very well. In fact, I'm just going to tell you, have I got this thing? Yeah. Somebody, after I shared this in the, in, the, in the last service, somebody came up to me, this is absolutely true, right here, and gave me the number of a repair guy. I said, I said, let me help your marriage. I said, thank you. God bless you. <laughs> Abraham built an altar. He's a builder of worship. Here is a photograph of, uh, of an altar. And uh, this has been, uh, this, it's believed that something like that would have been what Abraham built. Altars have been discovered from that era. Something like this. The point is it took work. It took work to construct that altar. And Abraham built these things everywhere he went. I think there's a danger, brothers and sisters, and I say this lovingly and carefully, there's a danger that we can treat worship 
by getting together like this. In such a casual way, we think, shall I, shall I sing? Shall I, shall I get involved with this? Worship is not a fast food experience. Take it or leave it. Worship is a building project. It's a construction zone where we come together whenever we feel like. And we worship Jesus because he's worth it. And greatness comes, not as we lose that as our priority, but as we do indeed prioritize it. I want to say again, in case I haven't already said it, our work should be part of our worship. Everything we do is part of our worship. But there are times when we gather together, we sing our songs, we pray our prayers, we open the book. These times really matter. Well, as I wrap this up, I found this week an example of simple but beautiful greatness. And I felt like I wanted to share it with you. These words are written by a man called Dr. Richard Selzer. Uh, He's a surgeon, but he's as skilled with words as he is with a scalpel. A beautiful writer. And he writes these words, which I would like to share with you, in his book, Mortal Lessons, Notes on the Art of Surgery. Here's, I believe, a really powerful observation. He says, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, somewhat clownish, a tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be this way from now on. I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut that little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me. The moment is a private one. Who are they? I ask myself. He and this wry mouth I have made who gaze at each other so generously, so lovingly. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say. It will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent but the young man smiles I like it he says I think it's kind of cute and all at once I understand who he is I understand and I lower my gaze one is not bold in an encounter with a god unmindful he bends to kiss her crooked mouth And I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works.
behold greatness. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, as we gather around your word today that we see that greatness in your eyes is different from what is often in ours. I thank you, Lord, because I look around this room and I, I know that in different ways and in different contexts there are people who probably wouldn't describe themselves as great, but they really are. Help us to look beyond the horizon of number one or be desperate to be number one. Deliver us from the notion that we can try anything or do anything if we try hard enough and help us instead to live ordinary life beautifully and be what you call us to be. Make us to be the best us that we can be. Help us to forsake the way of the isolated Lone Ranger and help us too to build altars, altars of worship, altars of praise. We are blessed, but we are blessed to bless. This week, may we learn more about what that looks like. And for any of us here, finally, Lord, who are weary of the posture of standing on our own two feet, help us, we pray, to come to the end of ourselves and find you there waiting, as you are right now, for our declaration of dependency. We ask these things. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. Now, we were talking earlier about building.